This episode, I'm joined by Jeffrey J. Kripal, who is a professor of philosophy and religious thought, alongside being the author of multiple books on esotericism, Gnosticism, New Age religions, and mystical literature. In this episode, we discuss his book, The Flip. I'd like to thank all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible, and if you'd like to support Mythics or become part of the community, please find links in the description below. Enjoy. Jeff Greifel, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics podcast. Thanks, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Um, so we're going to be talking about your your book, The Flip, who you really are and why it matters, um, which is, is it recently been republished by Penguin? Right. It came out in 2018 and it was released this last spring by Penguin, unfortunately, right as the pandemic was was exploding. So I'm not sure anybody noticed, but yes. <laughs> Okay. So for those that don't know you, um, could you tell us a little bit about you and, and what it is your your work sort of trying to figure out or what it's directed towards? Well, I'm still trying to figure that out, too. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, technically I'm a historian of religions, which means I compare things. I compare religious systems. I compare myths and rituals and religious experiences. I started out um, actually wanting to be a monk. Um, I started out in the Roman Catholic tradition and then moved sort of out of that into the broader academic world and studied Hinduism for a while. And then the California counterculture and human potential movement. And for about the last 10, 15 years, I've been more and more interested in people's what we might call their secular or non-traditional religious experiences, which are often anomalous and extreme and um, kind of baffling. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested in those gaps or those those fractures between someone's experience and the culture or worldview they, they inhabit. So you're sort of a, re- a reverse Thomas Merton. <laughs> I, you know, I adored Thomas Merton. I he he was one of the people. I think actually this is where Merton was moving. To be really honest, I I was deeply influenced by Merton's Asian journals and by his writings. And you know, he was moving this way before he before he died. And um, so I I'm not sure I'm a reverse Thomas Merton. I think I just might be a humble, uh, insignificant continuation of Thomas Merton. Okay. <laughs> Do you mind if I ask, do you still have a um, sort of a clear belief structure personally? Are you still Roman Catholic or has, has this work sort of moved you away from that? Yeah, so that's a tough one. I um, People ask me all the time what my relationship to Catholicism is, and I always say tortured. Um, and by that, I mean, I'm deeply indebted to the tradition. I'm deeply influenced by it. I engage Catholic colleagues and students all the time. I certainly don't believe the creed. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not a, a, an Orthodox um, or believing Catholic in that sense. I certainly have a belief system. I'm not entirely sure what it is, and I'm not sure belief is the right response at the moment. Um, I think it's too quick and too easy, uh, and I'd rather not believe and just sort of work towards some future culture or worldview that uh, you or I will probably never inhabit, but perhaps someone else will. Okay. Okay. Um, so to begin, I hope um, that's not, a, I hope that's not a dodge. 
No, I, no, not at all. I really don't mean it to be a dodge. I mean it's very honest. If I if I had a if I had a credo, I would tell you what it is, but I I don't. Okay. No, 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 I don't think that's a dodge at all. Um I yeah, I see what I understand where you're coming from. Um perhaps this will those things will come back in. But um just to begin the Hermetics question, um you can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the oh. conversation. Who do you pick? <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I, you know, I'm a big fan of William Blake. I'd, I'd, I'd love to see William Blake in any room uh, since he was such a, a wild man. Um, I'm also well, not so much anymore, but I was a deep fan and reader of, of Sigmund Freud. Um, and after that, um, you know, maybe maybe Harold Bloom or some some literary critic that knows just everything about literature, but is also has some kind of mystical or Gnostic inflection. Get those three people in the room and see what happens. What do you, what do you think would happen? Where do you think that conversation might, might lead? Well, for one thing, Bloom loves Blake and Freud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, that would be really interesting. I'm not sure what Freud would think of, of Blake. Um, I, I think it would lead to some kind of conversation about the profundity of the religious traditions, but also their inadequacy and where we go from here and what an honest intellectual does with all of this. I think that's, I think that's where such a conversation goes. Do you see your work as as addressing that same question then that traditional methods of religious, specifically belief are inadequate to the, the knowledge that we have gained through experiences and and the, the 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 themes that you're writing about in the flip absolutely i mean you know when someone asks you what your three favorite authors are what you re- what you really mean by that question is who are the puppets through which you ventriloquize your own ideas right <laughs> i mean this this is what we do as cowards we we quote other people when what we really mean is this is what i think and um, of course this is what i think i think I think we're basically lost at the moment and we're kind of in a transition point and the, the worlds and religions of the past have essentially collapsed upon themselves. Um, and the sciences are giving us more and more knowledge of the sort of objective material realm, but nothing about the subjective spiritual realm. Um, and so we're at this really difficult crisis point where I think things are collapsing, and the question is, can we reconstitute them in some kind of new form or not? I think that's the only real question. Do you think the the religions that you say have collapsed? Do you think they've sort of objectively collapsed, as if they as if they've actually been no, destructed, I mean... <laughs> or it's a subjective societal, more of a Nietzschean collapse? I mean, the religions don't know they've collapsed, and of course, they're filled with billions of people who would of course vehemently deny that. But I think just any any educated person who knows something about the sciences and history and philosophy would find it difficult to defend certainly all of them. I mean, even even religious people will only usually defend one religion, right? <laughs> they, they have nothing to say or only really silly things to say about other religions. So they collapse just by virtue of comparing them. I suppose has been my my main argument that comparison renders each and every religion unbelievable, uh, even if it also renders each and every religion believable, you know, within that system. So, I mean, this is the paradox that I think we're in in the modern world. 
Um, I don't think, for example, our ancestors, you know, a couple centuries back, they they were born, lived, and died within a, you know a fifty mile radius, and they there was no telecommunications, there was there were no newspapers, there were there was no knowledge of the broader world, and so you could maintain some kind of singular religious tradition more or less i mean i know i know there were there were differences and there were there were there was all sorts of violence and intolerance but it was a pretty singular cultural world wherever you look today you know in a modern city or a modern hospital say you're, you're going to flow through 20 30 worldviews in a single day without knowing it and people don't comment on that and people don't we don't recognize the unsustainability of that. We just pretend it's that all of these worldviews can be preserved as, as somehow persuasive when they no longer are. They all seem to sort of be being subsumed into the same consumer culture though. Well, on one level, yeah. I mean, I think, I think capitalism and consumerism, you know, have sort of become the lingua franca of the world, but I, I don't think, I don't think that world has subsumed these religious worldviews. I mean, people are still religious. They still attend rituals. They still turn to their belief in times of suffering or crisis or death. I mean, I don't, I don't think these, these economic um, processes are, are determinative uh, in, in that way. I think they certainly influence how we are religious, but they don't, they, they don't reduce, reduce, you can't reduce religion to economics. Uh, even though a lot of people want to try. <laughs> okay, okay. Jumping in to your book, um, obviously we've got the title here, The Flip. So what is it to be flipped? Well... <laughs> That's the, big, the, the million dollar question. Yes, I mean, I'll, I'll put it simply, and then I'll, maybe we can talk about how I came to this book. I mean, The Flip is basically when a scientist or an engineer or a medical professional who inhabits an entirely materialist or mechanistic worldview has some extraordinary experience and realizes that actually mind or consciousness or subjectivity is primary and the material or physical world is secondary. They, they literally flip from there is no mind or consciousness to actually mind or consciousness is everything. Uh, and what's, what, what I think so interesting about those flips is they also realize, and this is important, they often, they also realize that their science or medicine or engineering works just fine in this new metaphysical system. It, the, the materialism was just an interpretation and it actually wasn't a very good one. Um, so, so that's the flip. Would I be heading down the wrong path and already constraining your, the view that you're putting forward here by saying that it seems to me a, a Kantian outlook? Well, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not, a, I don't know enough about Kant to say to, to be really honest, um, what I do know about Kant is that he was pretty dodgy about the kinds of anomalous experiences that I talk about in the flip. I mean, he he knew a lot about Swedenborg, for example, and accepted uh, Swedenborg's clairvoyant abilities in private, but he made fun of them in print. So, you know, did he flip? I don't know. He certainly doesn't tell us that in, in, in anything he wrote that I know of. And he seems sort of cowardly to me around Swedenborg. Um, and so I'm, you know, the flip is about not being, not being cowardly and just admitting that things like Swedenborg happen 
and then integrating them into one's philosophy or worldview. And I don't see Immanuel Kant doing that. And I think there are aspects of Kantian philosophy that move in that direction. For example, the notion that space and time are a priori categories in our head and are not out there. I think, yes, that's that's a kind of idealism that's trending in this direction. But I don't, I don't hear Kant, and I certainly don't hear Kantians today talk like this. It's sort of connected to the idealism idea, actually. What do you, you in the book you state matter is also minded, um, in the sense that we're an expression of a sort of a cosmic mind. Um, yeah, could you expand on this? Well, okay. So look, I mean, what I really do in the book is go through five different answers to the mind matter problem that are being entertained today. And idealism is just one of them. And it's really the the far extreme that I happen to not inhabit. I I admire it and I sympathize with it, but I'm actually not an idealist in the kind of classical sense where mind is, is the only thing in the world and, and matter is an expression or some kind of emanation of mind. I mean, I, again, I accept, I love that idea, but I, I'm not personally an idealist. Um, There are other options I explore, including something called dual aspect monism, which I do identify with in a kind of tentative, playful way. Um, I don't think we know what the correct answer is, and uh, I certainly don't, but I find dual aspect monism persuasive and very useful to look at my own historical material. And, And essentially what dual aspect monism says is that the world is one, it, it, and it's neither mental nor material. It's somehow both or neither on a fundamental level. And that it, in a human brain and body, it is split out into two dimensions, an objective physical realm and a subjective interior realm. But those are, in fact, just two sides of the same coin. Uh, and we experience them as dual. That's why it's called dual aspect, because of the way our brains work. And this is where it's Kantian, I suppose. Um, but in fact, it's all one thing. It's all one world. And that's why it's a monism. Uh, but that monism is neither mental nor material. That's why you can't really call it an idealism or a materialism. It's, 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 it's something else. It's some kind of weird third, third thing. So from that, it's then the ways that we interpret the world, say via science or um, via our selected religion, which allows us to go to one of these separate ones, but doesn't sort of does disallow a connection. Well, yes and no. I mean, so science is fantastic at exploring that objective, you know, third person perspective, that that material realm out there. But as far as I can tell, all science is done by human subjects. Uh, And so science really is is a function of of subjectivity and and the mind. And, And that's never really recognized or really struggled with. Uh, in certainly by most practicing scientists who are neither philosophers nor historians. Uh, Religion, you know, religion, of course, deals more with this subjective interior realm, but it also makes pretty strong philosophical claims on objective reality. I mean, it's arguing it knows what the real is. And in some forms of religion, of course, it is is arguing for a, a single or one world you know, underneath perception and and subjectivity. And those are the traditions I'm most interested in, of course, because I think they have the most to teach us. And I think they're actually quite similar to dual aspect monism, Um, which is, again, just a very abstract, very kind of 
philosophical position about the relationship of mind and matter. And that's what I was thinking of when I said, uh, certainly mind is mattered. I mean, that's kind of the standard view, right? That, that mind or consciousness is a function of brain matter. Um, but, but matter is also minded in this view. In other words, there's no such thing as, as just dead insentient matter. Matter itself is, 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 is also minded. It also has a mental dimension in this view. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the examples you give in the, in the book are usually sort of spontaneous or, you know, these aren't things that people can control. They, they just arise. As you say, it's the flip. It's not the moment you can control. So do you think in investigating these things, you are sort of, um, I believe it's quantum physics where it's the idea that if you're looking at the uh, experiment while it's ongoing, it's going to change the experiment. So do you think that in, in actually in writing this book, you might have scared away some flips that you might potentially potentially would have come? Um, I, probably the opposite. I think by writing about these things, you attract them. You know, I mean, that's been my experience as a writer is the, the more I write and the more I speak about these things, the more other people come out of their closets and, and talk about them. Um, so it has a kind of co-creative effect, I think. I mean, what you're talking about, there's a real problem. Um, and I don't want to dismiss that. The fact that these are rare and spontaneous and usually happen only in moments of crisis or danger or even death does not give me personally much hope that they're going to be integrated anytime soon into a public worldview, right? Um, because our common experience is, is not this. Our common experience is the world is not one. It's, it's many and we're, we're not the same mind. We're different. We're different minds. And so all the, everything about our ordinary experience argues against the position I'm arguing in the book. Um, nevertheless, people have these experiences and they're not tangential and they're not minor. They're often the most single most important experience of the person's life. Um, and so, you know, as someone who studies religion and religious experience, I feel I have to take those seriously. That's really what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and so that's what I do. But it doesn't mean I think people will be automatically convinced by this um, or that we can reproduce these in a laboratory. I actually don't think that. And, and I think there's all kinds of dangerous um, moral and political issues around generating these experiences on call. I, I'm worried about that. Um, I think that's actually becoming more and more possible in some of the new psychedelic research, for example that can fairly consistently produce these states in, in individuals. Um, but the way that then gets picked up by say the pharmaceutical industry or the scientific establishment is I think problematic. Um, so I think, I think there are all kinds of issues here and I try to address those, some of those, by the way, in the last chapter of the book mm-hmm. on the politics of the flip, which I think are ambiguous um, and, and sometimes difficult. Do you think there's also a problem with, uh, you mentioned sort of the, the psychedelic experiences in that when one is undergoing them, they know they're about to enter into something which may inherently change the, if you're expecting an experience, it's going to be far different to something which spontaneously arrives. Well, that's where it's difficult. I mean, we know a lot about the psychedelic experience set and setting and expectations are crucial, of course, but a lot of these anomalous experiences that, that occur outside psychedelic settings actually have no expectations. 
and they they come as a real surprise and as a real shock to the individuals and often it's such a shock that they can't integrate it into their worldview and they just don't talk about it so i i think this notion that every such experience is is a product or 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 an expression of some expectation is itself a way to control these experiences and kind of push back on them. I certainly would push back on that assumption. Um, I think expectation is important and I think it can help produce these states, but I don't think it's the only factor. And I think that's really just a form of reductionism again, um, which I am not persuaded by. Do you mind if I ask if you personally had a flip or was it a, a slow, <laughs> a slow burn? I think it was more of a flop. <laughs> I think I think I tried to flip and fell on my head or something. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I certainly had a few dramatic mystical experiences and and more than a few what we would might call paranormal experiences, which weren't yet mystical, but somehow uncannily combined the inner and the outer worlds. Um, but I don't, honestly, I I don't use those as the grounds for my arguments, although I do think that they provide a kind of sympathetic background and a kind of ear to hear people who talk about these things. Um, I think if you have not had such an experience, you don't have ears to hear. You, you cannot hear. You, you cannot believe what someone is telling you. Once you've had such an experience, you're like, Oh yeah, I get that. That happens. Um, and then you'll listen. Um, so I, th- I think there's an inbuilt esotericism or an inbuilt elitism, if you want, uh, into this conversation that I think is just unavoidable. Mm-hmm. Um, from this podcast, I've spoken to quite a few people who are working roughly in the same areas. And one of the things you hear people say before they're sort of begin to actually look into these things, they say something along the lines of, I couldn't, I couldn't explain it. And do you think uh, you know, I couldn't explain the experience. And do you think I was recently talking about sense and the philosophy of sense with someone else? And there, there, there's this problem with sense in terms of being a slave to the empire of signs in that one can't explain what the taste of a cup of coffee is. Um, so or you can't explain the logic of birds in flight, even though you can get that down on paper, the, the act itself, you're never going to be able to truly explain it. And so in do you think in that way we are the real sort of master which is holding us back is that we rely on language and signs for everything, absolutely yeah. everything? Yeah. I mean, I think these experiences are literally nonsensical. And by that, I mean, they have actually nothing to do with the senses. You know, we, we just assume that our senses, the, the way we see and hear and smell and, and, and even more so our language, grammar, is somehow definitive of reality. And I just think that's nonsense. I, you know, this is where mystical literature has been my real guide here. Uh, mystical literature all around the world has been warning us against this assumption for, for millennia that reality really actually has nothing to do with language. Uh, and it's, it, it's not sense-based. I mean, we can pick some fraction of it up with our senses, but let's not confuse that with, you know, the full spectrum of the real. So I, you know, I certainly work with that model. I see, I see the human being, the organism, the brain, the senses 
as essentially reductions of reality, not as accurate um, uh, uh, measurements or accurate um, tools to measure reality. And science, of course, is at the end of the day, a, 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 an expression of our senses in our, our, our minds. Uh, and th this is where mathematics is so interesting because it's really not grammatical. It's really not sense-based. It's, it's entirely abstract. Uh, and it's kind of the premier symbol system of science, of course. Um, and its roots are all mystical, by the way, uh, in ancient Greece. So I, to me, mathematics is where you start you start to approach what I'm trying to say here, but it's certainly not sense-based and certainly not linguistic. Yeah, I ha I've had this exact same discussion with the, prob the, the problem of discussing what math mathematics actually is. And uh, the, you hear people say, Every math uh, everything can be explained by mathematics. And I always think it can, but not in the way you think it can. It's nothing to do with digits or <laughs> numbers. They are phenomena and material reality they're expressing something and we have a mode of communication to understand what one or two is but in terms of what we're actually working with i think that's something far more removed well and the real mystery there again is that i've never seen mathematics expressed by anything other than a human being mm -hmm. so again it's it's an expression of the human mind which has this uncanny ability to mirror or approximate physical the physical cosmos which is just extraordinary and i don't think that's properly commented on i mean i ask my mathematician colleagues all the time what's a number <laughs> they don't you know they just laugh of course they've heard the question and they've thought about it but you know and a lot of them actually are walking platonists i mean they 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 really think of numbers as existing in some ideal world you know um some of them not not all of course um so I, I think mathematics is a great way to kind of get into this conversation with scientists um because they do have a profound sense of mathematics and they do understand um these problems you're bringing up so in perhaps it's a, this is a very abstract question but in terms of say a, a paranormal experience what is that mathematically well, I have no idea what it is mathematically. I, I mean, I can talk about it abstractly. Um, I mean, for me, a paranormal experience is simply when this one world splits off into a mental and a material dimension, and those two dimensions correspond almost perfectly. So something's happening in the physical world that corresponds basically perfectly to this interior subjective realm. And there's no good explanation for that. You can't get from one to the other. You can, there's no material cause. There's no mental cause, but they both go down into this, this singular world uh, and they, they correspond because they're expressions of that world. Um, so for me, that's a very abstract definition of, of a paranormal experience, but it, it's certainly not mathematical. That, uh, that explanation of the two worlds, two things happening at once which connect between two worlds that you, you mentioned there, um, actually draws in one of the people you put into the room, which is Freud and the, the famous anecdote of Jung discussing with Freud uh, synchronicity, and he, uh, I think he said something along the lines of, oh, it's a load of rubbish, and then a book falls off the shelf, and then Jung says something, I think, if this will happen again, and it does, and this book randomly falls off the shelf, and it's in this strange moment of synchronicity, which I think was the, the moment Freud said, no, it's all rubbish, and ran the other way. 
and obviously tried to assimilate everything into the uh, the Oedipal model. Um, so do you, do you think that um, synchronicity then plays a, plays a big part in noticing? Oh. So this dual aspect modism I'm talking about really comes out of Jung and, and Pauli, Wolfgang Pauli. I mean, Wolfgang Pauli, the great quantum physicist, was essentially a friend of Jung's and was deeply, deeply emotionally and sexually conflicted and was also a walking poltergeist. I mean, he would, this poltergeist phenomena just happened all around him. And it was a kind of joke, by the way, in the physics community. They called it the Pauli effect. And so this notion of, of dual aspect modism really emerges, uh, well, it emerges in a lot of people, but among them are Pauli and Jung. And synchronicity is a perfect example of what I'm trying to talk about. Um, so the Freud, the Freud story you told is interesting because it's actually not um, the true Freud you're talking about. It's the, it's the rational received stereotypical Freud, but it's actually not what Freud thought. Um, you know, Freud was fascinated by telepathy, for example, and he basically believed telepathy was a real thing. Um, he didn't like what Jung was up to, that's true. And he, he, he referred to it as the mud of occultism. But he himself was torn, to say the least, and was very, was very much into a lot of these occult ideas and, and thought, thought transference in the German or what we call telepathy in English was, was absolutely real. And that it often occurred in psychoanalysis, particularly in dream interpretation. So I think, I think the history of, of thought in the West is always more interesting and complicated than we're given to believe. We're told the simple story, but we're not actually told the actual story, which is always more like this. It's quite interesting what you say there about Freud. Um, do you think then that almost following psychoanalysis to a T, metaphorically, that we are self-policing in the terms, in psychoanalytical terms, it would be repression. And we're self-policing in the, you know, we, that didn't happen. That's not normal. Get back to my real life. Get back to lovely material, the comfort of modernity. That self-policing is the same as repression. And Freud perhaps was trying to find a accessible language to allow us to address these things without saying, oh yeah, by the way, it might not really be what we're saying it is. It could be something a bit, um, a bit occult, a bit hidden. Right. So when he talked about telepathy or thought transference, he wasn't thinking of some comic book or science fiction thing where, you know, one, I zap you with some thought, you know, and there's some physical energy that goes from one. He was really thinking about how the human mind censors itself and transforms every uh, cognition or every sense sensibility of another person and changes that into dream language or displaces it or exaggerates it or puts it into a symbol so he was he was really trying to make this argument that these occult phenomena don't happen literally and simply because the human mind is set up in a way to not allow that to happen and so they can occur indirectly and symbolically but they can't actually or generally happen um, in a literal fashion so he was using his own thought to think about these things um, and if you know the more you listen to experiencers, the more that kind of approach makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, most people don't know they've had a telepathic dream, of course, until something happens later. 
you know, and often they can't distinguish it just a dream from a telepathic one. So it, 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 it all usually only becomes obvious later. So the, that's the subject of, is it Dunn's favorite, famous text on? Yeah, the time stuff. Yeah, no, precognition is another thing. You know, Freud was not a fan of precognition. He, he drew the line there. Um, but precognition, precognitive dreaming is a, is a wonderful topic we could talk about, and um, particularly in the work of a man named Eric Wargo today. Have you had Eric on here, by the Eric's, way? Eric's coming on. He's very busy at the moment, but he's coming on soon. Oh, you're gonna you're gonna like Eric. Yeah. yeah, you're gonna like Eric. He's he's amazing, actually, and um, he's one of these thinkers that really throws a whole new light on, pre, particularly precognitive dreaming, and its relationship to to creativity. So, what's your understanding of precognition in relation to the to the flip and the the stuff you're working with in there? Well. <sighs> A lot, a lot of flips, by the way, do happen around pre, precognitive dreams. In fact, the book begins with a precognitive dream. It begins with um, Mark Twain, actually, who had a very, very dramatic and very detail-specific dream of his brother Henry's funeral. And, I mean, it was so real when he woke up. He, he was, got dressed to go down to the funeral home until he realized that, A, it was just a dream, and B, his brother Henry was just fine. Um, but Henry then was was actually killed um, by a, an overdose after he was injured in a boiler accident about two two weeks later. And when Twain walked uh, into the funeral parlor, his dream of the weeks before played out in perfect detail. And so for Twain, Twain's interesting because Twain then linked those experiences of which he had many, by the way, to his own literary creativity. He felt that this is how he wrote was that he received essentially messages and stories from, from out there somewhere. And he called it mental telegraphy. So that's how the book begins. Um, so how is this related to the flip? Well, once you've had such a precognitive dream or experience, you can, you, you begin to question time for one thing and whether the mind is is locked into the present right mm -hmm. it, may, it may not turn you into an idealist or a dual aspect monist but it certainly loosens uh your sense that the the mind is is somehow frozen into the present whatever that is um and you begin you know you begin to have to entertain this idea that the mind is extended uh, outside, outside the present body and brain into the future or the past. So that I mean, that's that that's. I'm just talking out loud. I don't, I don't really haven't really thought about how that relates to a flip per se, but it certainly relates to some people's flips. Do you think there's a certain quality or character of person who is actually more open? to these types of types of experience happening because i mean i mean obviously you've given the example of mark twain and it seems that many people that these happen to are also well known in in um you know creative pursuits um but listen yeah i think that's an accident by the way i think that's just a function of those are the people who write <laughs> okay right and, and those are the people we read um but twain is interesting that story is significant for two reasons one is it wasn't just a dream. It was a dream about a beloved brother's death. Mm -hmm. Okay. So first of all, it's a serious, serious trauma. 
that you're not going to just randomly reproduce. Secondly, Twain didn't want to write about it because he knew that once he did, he would probably be mocked or made fun of. And so when he actually submitted this essay, it was called Mental Telegraphy, he submitted it to Harper's Weekly, which was one of the big magazines of the era. And he, uh, this, I always think this is funny. No one else does, but I do. He, he asked that they publish it anonymously. So if you put yourself in the editor's position and the most famous writer of the era hmm. sends you an essay and says, oh, by the way, you can't use my name here. Hmm. I mean, what, what are you going to say? You're going to say, are you crazy? You know, of course we want to use your name. So eventually he gave in and published those essays. But my point is, is that for decades, he wouldn't write about them. So there's this censorship that goes on, right? Mm-hmm. And when we do learn about something, it's usually through something being written or published. And my my really strong belief, and it's just a belief, I don't have any proof of this, is that these things are everywhere and always, and they're happening right now to millions of people. And we will never know because our cultures effectively suppress them. Um, and so I, I think the silence around this thing isn't a function of them, their rarity. I think it's a function of our our social our social habits and our intellectual dogmas that we happen to hold right now. So you, 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 we sort of all self-police it out of the same embarrassment of Twain, that, that uh, we're beholden to normality. We want to stay sane and popular and we don't want to be ostracized. Yep. Hmm. There's this story. There's this story in the flip I tell to make to drive this point home where this uh, Bruce Grayson's his name. Actually, he's a psychiatrist at the University of Virginia. He studies. He's, he's like the scholar of near death experiences, actually. But Bruce once got a phone call from uh, a medical colleague of his, a male doctor who had had a near death experience. And <laughs> it shattered really what he thought, pretty much everything he thought about the body and, and the, the human being. And he wanted to talk to Bruce about it and how he could break this horrible news to his wife, who was a totally secular, materialist-oriented medical doctor as well. And so Bruce suggested that the three of them sit down, you know, basically have a coming to terms, Jesus moment, as we say in the States here, um, although that's probably not appropriate here. Um, and so they sit down and the husband starts to try to tell his wife about his near-death experience. And she breaks in and says, wait a minute. I had one of these 15 hmm. years ago and I was not going to tell you because I was afraid you were going to make fun of me. And he says, well, that's why I didn't tell you. And so you had you have a husband and a wife living together for how many decades? And both of them had had a life-changing near-death experience and they both hid it from each other because of their training. Do you think the these should we just say forces that, that that enact these you know it's going to be difficult to describe whatever they are but do you think that the more one suppresses them by you know abiding by a materialist outlook and secular outlook and sort of saying no 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 will actually sort of seems to halt them ever ever appearing or do you think it's just further ignorance no i think it's pretty effective yeah. <laughs> I, I mean yeah i think i think it works um I think it suppresses the reporting of them. I also think, I suspect it also suppresses how they happen. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it has, 
I think it has a deadening effect on their actual occurrence too. I mean, yeah, I think there's a profound effect of, of what we might call doubt or skepticism that actually suppresses the phenomena that it's doubtful about. Um, just as we know that the, the, the opposite is true, that if you believe in something, it's more likely to happen, you know, with the placebo effect, for example, there's a, there's, there's an anti-placebo effect too, as well. We, we've known that for a long time. Yeah. I mean, in philosophical terms, there's the, the term hyperstition, the, the way in which a, a fiction becomes real via bringing it about via the, the culture. So I assume that the, the reverse is true that, uh, if you really, really don't, if you, if you consistently don't believe something's going to be, but I think, I guess the worrying thing is that you may potentially be suppressing something which you just don't want to admit is still there, which is going to damage you. And sort of, uh, it's an example that's come up quite a few times when I've spoke to John Michael Greer about walking into a room and getting the overwhelming sense that you shouldn't, shouldn't be there or something, you know, it's not a nice place to be and you should leave. And materialist outlook will, you know, will, that's what straight away gets in your head and says, no, 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 you're being silly. Like, don't trust your gut, be logical. And then lo and behold, something always happens. And it seems that, um, yeah, it just seems that people sort of desire to suppress these. And it, I, I, I just wonder why, I mean, is it as, com- is, is it as simple as that the self-policing is simply because people don't want to be embarrassed? Well, yeah. I mean, on one level, it's that simple. But on another level, you know, I think we fear these things for good reason, right? I mean, for one thing, if we were all telepathically open to one another, uh, that would be scary. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I certainly don't want you to read my mind any more than you want me to read yours, right? I mean, we, we have this sense of privacy and, and individualism. Also, if we have some, this is where I'm going to get a bit weird. If we have some kind of psychokinetic ability, some kind of mild psychokinetic ability, to manipulate material events, I mean, we can do serious harm. And, uh, you know, in most, and, and the truth is, this is where the history of religions comes back in. The truth is, is that the way this was usually talked about in the past is through magic. Mm-hmm. Um, magic is the manipulation of the physical world through mental means, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's essentially what I by the paranormal the paranormal is just a fancy new word for magic really but you know a lot of magic was black magic as we say it was it was it was designed to harm people and or to you know kill an animal on a hunt or to force uh, an enemy to do something it wasn't necessarily moral or nice so i think these these deep deep histories influence our fear around these things. And I, and I don't think that fear is irrational or, or unreasonable, but I think it has devastating consequences that, you know, that we're kind of suffering through now. I think it results in a materialist or mechanical worldview that's fundamentally depressing. Sort of heading back to the, the idea of language. Do you think that I'm reminded of the quote by is it Huxley or McLuhan, um, any sufficiently advanced technology is indiscernible from, an advanced magic. Do you think that, you know, these things, which we've been writing about for years and years and years, thousands of years, still there in the exact same reality of they've always had, but we are layering on a different type, another structure of language, which makes us believe they're easier to explain. You know, the idea that 
technology is magic or, or modern many modern psychology methods are CBT could be seen also as some strange form of magic. Yeah, so I don't like that quote. Um, I, I think it's a materialist and reductionist quote. I, I, I would reverse it. I think any genuine magical event will inevitably be read as a kind of misunderstood technology today because technology and science are our gods. They're, our, they're the way we think of the world. But I think magical events do happen. And um, the only way we can think about them today is by turning them into some kind of, you know, ancient alien technology or something, which, which I think is silly. Um, I think they're expressions of the human being. Um, and, you know, the other thing to say here is that our culture, our European, at least, our European Christian culture, at least, has had a really nasty relationship to magical practice. And monotheism doesn't sit well with super empowered human beings, which is essentially what a magician is. Um, so I think that that history really works against us here. And, and I think that's part of this fear as well. I, I once gave a talk, I once gave a lecture to a group of parapsychologists at a, at a conference and part of my talk was called Why You Are So Scary. And, you know, one of the things parapsychologists will often tell you if you get them talking is that whenever they give public talks, there, there's always somebody in the crowd who accuses them of demon worship or working huh. for Satan. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the monotheistic logic, right? That That if these abilities or powers come from human beings, they must be demon-inspired. If they come from God, on the other hand, they, they're they're godly or they're religious, and and so that's this you know kind of rough and ready distinction that the monotheistic imagination makes, and that's why we have such a bad bad history around magic and and what we I think call witchcraft for for dubious reasons today. Um, yeah, it's a strange coincidence that I mentioned. We mentioned Burton at the beginning because it's actually something that he mentions in uh, the start of Seven Story Mountain, where he said about how Church of England is is now like an aesthetic. It's just a void of most spiritual, uh, mystical elements that you would used to find in 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 um, Christianity, at least older Christianity. When thinking back to the Desert Fathers, etc. So it seems that that materialist framework has some fa somehow found a way to parasitically get inside religion as well and sort of have a pseudo so you can have a pseudo belief in Christianity, but still stay safe. Yeah. Well, materialism is the new monotheism, right? I mean, you just, it's the new God and it's a jealous God, just like monotheism was. So, you know, as long as you don't offend monotheism or materialism, you're, you're fine. But, but if you, practice or believe something other than those two jealous gods you're you better you better be careful uh at least in the public realm so what's what is the the sort of question or project that you're trying to answer with these works then again i i struggle you know I, people ask me what i'm doing i'm like i don't know what i'm doing i'm just doing it i, I i'm just sort of moving from one inspiration to another with the hope that somehow it fits together or will fit together. Um, 
I would describe my project today if I, if I had to, and I suppose I have to, because you just asked the question. I am most interested in how the natural sciences are reshaping the religious imagination and how we're moving out of this earlier Christian mythos, uh, you know, this biblical mythos of creation and redemption. And we're moving into some other grand mythology of, you know, the big bang and cosmology and evolution and, and kind of the new science fiction future. And I, it's not that I don't believe the former and now I believe the latter, but I'm most interested in that process and how that story is changing and how it's sort of changing kind of from the floorboards up. It's not like elites are just consciously meeting together and changing it. It's, it's coming through entertainment and film and comic books and spiritual movements. And it's just it's podcasts. And I mean, it's, it's coming all over the place. And I think the story that our, that our descendants will live in in a hundred years is going to be fundamentally different than the story that our ancestors lived in a hundred years, a hundred years ago. And we're, we're kind of in the middle of that process. Uh, it's what I call the super story. Um, and I think that's what I'm really trying to map out. Um, I don't think I'll ever understand it. I don't think I'll ever map it out fully, but I think I can kind of get a sense for what's going on. Okay. So in terms of these experiences, the interest then is because is in a way that you have an experience. If you explain it in one way, you might be able to grasp a bit of it, but it's not going to be entirely that. So these experiences are like a meta reality because they're outside of any framework you try to apply them to. So it, in that way, you have you have these experiences which just just tr- not any sp- specific philosophical meaning to this, but transcend any reality we can give them. From these, do you think people can find or have found meaning or happiness or purpose? Oh, sure, absolutely. I mean, this is part of the flip. I mean, p- one of the dogmas of the scientific world is that there is no telos. You know, there is no final cause, as Aristotle would have said. There, the, the world's going nowhere. There, there is no goal or endpoint to, to evolution or, or human life or anything else. And if you want to really, really want to make uh, an evolutionary biologist upset, start talking about telos. Start, start talking about purpose or design. They'll, they'll, they'll go, they'll just, they will not be happy with you. What about death? Well, death's fine. Death is sufficiently depressing. That's, I mean, a, per, that's, a, that's a personal subjective teleology of all humans, though, right? Well, yeah, but we don't... I mean, what religion is about is what happens after you die. And, of course, that's the, that's the telos, or that's, that's the eschatologies, as we say in the study of religion, that, that are, are really at the core of these systems. So I'm not, I'm not here to sign my name to any one of those ends or goals, but... What happens in the flip is people often recognize that there is purpose, there is design, there is there is a goal to the cosmos. We may not know what that is, but now that we know there's a goal or a ground of things, that you know, I can live my life differently and and I can live it with purpose now, even if my own little purposes don't always match this grander purpose, which I don't have access to, right? Has there ever been a project to almost cross-reference what's happened in ex- or multiple experiences and see if they connect? 
Of course, many people have tried to do that. Um, that's a huge debate in the study of religion. I mean, you know, some people think there is a kind of common core or uh, similarity across traditions. Other people don't. And it really kind of comes down to the worldview of the person making the argument, I think. I personally think it's hard to look at the history of religions and conclude that there is no purpose or design and that it's all just meaningless. But I also think it's hard to sign your name to any of those particular systems or conclusions about what the purpose and design is. Um, and so it leaves me in a kind of both and position where there's this profound sense of, of purpose, but what that purpose is, 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 is up in the air. And I suppose that's why I write. And that's why I'm interested in these things is I want to find out, but I, I don't want to believe. I, again, I think that's premature and, and it's kind of a cop-out. What would you say then to those who, after perhaps reading a few texts along these lines, still are suspicious or hostile or even just entirely just do not do not even allow it near them? They just do not believe in it. What would you say to those people? I understand. I, I, I really do. I, I, I think that's a very rational, reasonable response. I, I would look at that response, though, and I, I would say, you know, just spend some time with some people who have had these experiences and talk to them about it. You know, don't read about it. Talk to people about it and get a feel for the humanity and the honesty and the integrity of these experiences. Um, and then, you know, then revisit the question. One of the things that well, there are many things that the debunkers say that annoy the crap out of me. Um, but one of them is that people talk about these experiences because they want attention or they want to make money or something, which I can assure you is just nonsense in most cases. People don't want to talk about these things. People don't want to draw attention to themselves. They're embarrassed by them. Um, and so I think once you talk to enough people who have had these experiences, you you sort of get beyond a lot of the knee-jerk reactions to this and you you kind of land in a much more humane and open-ended and questioning space that I, that I think is really healthy and I think is much more honest and intellectual actually than the quick um, memes that that you get on the internet or you get you know in a debunkers book like you know any extraordinary claim demands extraordinary evidence why is that because you said it I mean, come on. Um, I, I, that's not true, for one thing. I mean, extraordinary things happen to people all the time, and all they need is that one experience, and they're changed forever. You don't. You don't need. You don't need proof. I think that's um, a that's a Christopher Hitchens quote, right? What do you What do you make of the the sort of the new atheist movement as a whole? Well, I th okay. So that's a whole other topic. Um, I think the new atheists, though, first of all, they're not all atheists in the same way. Uh, Sam Harris is actually really interesting. To me personally, um, he he thinks a lot of the paranormal stuff is probably genuine, um, but open to discussion. Um, I think a lot of the new atheism is a response to 9-11, frankly. Uh, I think it's a moral response to religious fundamentalism. And I often align myself with their moral horror at what religious fundamentalism can do in the world. I mean, I... I, I get that, but they tend to paint with very, very broad brushstrokes. And 
they tend to um, reduce religion to its worst uh, manifestations. Um, well, they don't just tend to; they do. <laughs> they, they they essentially create straw men, and then they and then they you know knock down the straw men. And it, it's just it's not historically accurate, actually. I mean, religions are really complicated thing, and. A lot of religious people are super, super smart and super, super sophisticated. And you can't just equate Islam with with Islamic fundamentalism or Christianity with evangelical fundamentalism or whatever. You just can't do that. And even among those communities, there are really, really smart, sophisticated people trying to think through these questions. Um, so I, that's what I think about the new atheists. I I, I understand them. I, I share their moral dis, their moral horror, but they're not scholars of religion, and they shouldn't pretend to be. Um, they should stick to their own whatever it is they think they know. Hmm. Um, is there anything you would would like to add about the book that we've sort of something key that we sort of glossed over? I I would like to say something about its context, which I think is important. Mm -hmm. I. So I teach at a university that's very much STEM oriented. Our, 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 young, our young students, our, our young people are future doctors and engineers and chemists and scientists. And so they're completely inculcated in this materialistic worldview that works for them. And when I first started to teach them, I would just use classical religious texts. And I realized fairly quickly that it didn't matter how many religious experiences I pulled out, all they would say in their heads is these are just crazy religious people. Mm -hmm. So what I decided to do was essentially use scientists and engineers and medical professionals who had the exact same experiences and say, oh, here you go. Here's, here's your own talking about the same thing. And what I found, you know, and this is just kind of my own impression. I found that that really did change the conversation. Um, and that it was much more difficult to dismiss these things. Um, and so I think that's important. I think, I think the scientist or the, the doctor or the engineer are our new cultural authorities. And I think um, a lot of responsibility lies on them to help us, to help us transform the world in a, in a positive way. And so I think their, essentially their conversion stories or their flips are going to be really important here. And, and so that's why... I use them in the book. I mean, not every flip is is a scientist or an engineer or a doctor, but most of them are, and and that's intentional. Uh, okay, understood. Um, whereabouts can we purchase the book? <laughs> I think pretty much anywhere you want to purchase. Anywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I don't know where are you geographically. I'm in, in, the, you in, in the UK. You're in the UK, so Penguin. It's a Penguin uh, British edition now, and. We desperately need your support. <laughs> uh, and if you're in the States, uh, Bellevue Literary Press published it in 2018. Two very different covers, both beautiful covers. Um, you can get it at your local bookstore or online. I think they, they changed the tagline for the Penguin one, though. We we changed it. Oh, I mean, okay. I changed it. I changed it because they asked me to. What was it initially? Um, so it was called The Flip, and the, the tagline was Epiphanies of Mind and the Future of Knowledge. Mm-hmm which is a bit, bit nerdy, I guess. And Penguin was like, hey, can you, can, you, can you come up with something else? And so I did. And so the new tagline is who you really are and why it matters, um, which is true as well. I mean, both carry the, I think, the punch of the book. 
but they carry it in very different ways. Okay. Um, yeah, Jeff Kripal, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks. Thanks for having me.